0: and on Instagram and Twitter at BurnedByBooks. Let's start the show. Adelaide Henry has just set her childhood house on fire with the bodies of her parents within the burning pyre. Thus begins the horror and an adventure of Victor Laval's latest novel, Lone Women. Set in Montana in the early 20th century, as homesteaders were promised a plot of land and unlimited possibilities, Lone Women traces Adelaide's journey as a single black woman from California to Big Sandy, Montana, where her plot of land sits on one of the most unforgiving terrains in the United States and where the neighbors have their own secrets to keep. But Adelaide doesn't travel alone. She carries with her a steamer trunk, unimaginably heavy, filled with what she calls her burden, a supernatural monster of uncertain origin. Together, Adelaide and her burden will face a desolate landscape and a town of outcasts, uncertain as to what they think of this new mysterious arrival. An acknowledged master of suspense and horror, Victor LaValle's Lone Women enters the genre of the Western only to pull it apart at its seams, investing it with a new energy and new questions about who exactly made the perilous journey to make a homestead and what their life would have been like. A novel of secrets, Lone Women begins as one kind of monster story— and ends with multitudes, each new monster a little more frightening, a little more recognizable. At each turn, Lone Women asks of Adelaide and the reader, are you the kind of person who lives with shame or dies from it? This is a novel that defies categorization, while matching itself to the very best storytelling we have in our contemporary moment. If you haven't yet introduced yourself to the work of Victor Laval, Lone Women is just the perfect opportunity. Victor is the author of the short story collection Slap Boxing with Jesus, and five novels: The Ecstatic, Big Machine, The Devil in Silver, The Changeling and Lone Women, and two novellas, Lucretia and The Croons, and Lucretia and the Croons, and The Ballad of Black Tom. He is also the creator and writer of two comic books, Destroyer and Eve. His novel The Changeling will soon be airing on Apple TV+, starring LaKeith Stanfield. He has been the recipient of numerous awards including the World Fantasy Award, British Fantasy Award, Bram Stoker Award, the Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, Shirley Jackson Award, American Book Award, and the Key to Southeast Queens. He teaches at Columbia University. Welcome to the show, Victor. Hey, Chris,
1: I'm happy to be here.
0: Well, this book was such a transporting and propulsive ride, and it is doing so much. It's so layered. But I want to think a little bit about the genesis of it, which I know came from some research you did into homesteaders. Could you talk a little bit about that research and how Adelaide Henrique emerged from that archive?
1: Yeah. Uh, well, so all of this really begins with, uh, me making a trip to the university of Montana, uh, must've been, it could be 2008, 2009 for a, uh, a reading. I was there for two, two, three days. And, uh, what I started to make a practice of for myself when I visited places where I thought I probably would not come back to again, uh, I would buy a book of local history, um, Uh, so that uh, I could read about the place that I'd been, even uh, if I didn't get to know it while I was there. And it felt Mm. like my way of sort of just digging a little more, because whenever you do an event, like you go for a reading or something like that, you show up, you fly in on a certain day, then maybe you go to uh, meet a class of undergrads or grad students. Maybe you go out to dinner with some faculty members, you do a reading, and then you go home the next day. Uh, It's rare that it's longer than that. Um, So while I was at the University of Montana's bookstore, I went to their local history section and I came across this book called Montana Women Homesteaders, A Field of One's Own Hmm. by uh, Dr. Sarah Carter. Um, And in short, it was just a history of lone women homesteaders, which means either single women or widows uh, who came to uh, places like Montana in the... Early years of the twentieth century, uh, the 1900s up to maybe the 1930s, um, and due to the uh, the the ways the laws had been written at that time, the uh, the the term used for who was allowed to uh, claim plots of land, uh, 320 acre plots of lands, was just it just said someone, hmm. and as a result, um, women, single women, widowed women, uh, were Eligible for this land in part because the federal government was so desperate to have this land settled essentially by anybody who wasn't the indigenous folks mm-hmm. who had originally been there. Um, and as a result, these women were allowed to come. And then the even greater revelation for me was I thought, okay, as I'm reading this, so okay, so it was just white women, but it wasn't just white women. I discovered that there were, you know, not many, but there were some black women homesteaders, that there could be uh, uh, Hispanic, Latino. Uh, Latina homesteaders uh, who might have come up, say, from Mexico, um, uh, that Chinese people could not homestead because uh, the Chinese were the racial minority who were the most le- illegally demonized at that time, along with the indigenous populations. Uh, and it was all just so complicated and interesting. And I just fell into reading about it. I wasn't even planning to write about it. It was just reading about it. Hmm. But the more I read about it, the more complicated that past became, the more complicated my picture of Montana in 1915 became. Uh and I realized my picture of it was based on nothing but like TV shows and movies. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I had no idea about this place, but then I asked people at the university, friends who I'd made there, who were Montana natives or who had moved there for work if they knew about these women and they didn't know either. And that to me was the sign that like, this is a story that's worth telling.
0: Well, and, and you know what? I I knew that there were black homesteaders, but the idea of single women, black homesteaders was, was a total shock <laughs> for me. Yes. yes. Um, and I, and I have to say that almost my entire like uh, imaginative landscape of homesteaders comes from this funny, quasi reality TV show that PBS did called Frontier House. Did you remember it? Did you remember it? Yeah. Yes. And and there was this amazing black guy and his new fiancee who were one yes. of the homesteaders and he and his father came and helped him build things. And and I. I gleaned so much of what little I know from that. Um, but it was so interesting to find that this was an actual historical thing. And that that's often what I love about fictions that kind of delve into history is they do some reawakening of history that has gone to sleep for various reasons. And part of that is, as you say, it's the pop cultural imagination only has us picture one kind of homesteader. But do, were you thinking about that as you were kind of writing this fiction that you were in fact using a fiction to awaken uh, a, a little bit of a lost history.
1: Oh, absolutely. I mean, uh, I mean, certainly uh, one of the uh, feelings I was trying to sort of pull out of my ide- ideal reader or my reader was that same sense of sort of wonder that I had um, as I was reading the nonfiction that I began to do research on. You know, uh, and uh, I felt like one of the things I I kind of gleefully imagined would happen would be all these details that would be in the book that someone reading would say, well, he made that up. Okay, this other stuff, but he made that up. And like one of the rules I actually had for myself was that except for literally except for the one element of the uh, sort of the supernatural element in the trunk, that there would be nothing else that wasn't based on historical research. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, and in that way, I wanted it to feel like you really were there uh, completely, and that, in fact, at least some of those details that were based on real historical research, when you looked at the book as a whole, you might say, actually, that supernatural element's more
0: believable than some of this.
1: Uh, you know, <laughs> And I thought that would be kind of fun.
0: <laughs> well, and and there's this idea um, that, the, that the West and homesteading was, you know, was such a male thing. And you've yes. got Adelaide, but you've also got Bertie Brown and you've got Fiona Wong, these women of color forging a community in that sort of un, supposedly untamed West. And I wonder how the h- particular history of people of color in the West started to merge with this fictional history and lone. Women for you.
1: Well, you talked uh, a minute ago about um, the idea of um, the history of homesteading, just in general, and um, the 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 main sort of uh, black homesteading history that I'd I'd known something about, and then I started to read more about was like black uh, black homesteading farmers, particularly in like Southern California, which is why I said I had Adelaide begin there.
0: Mm, um, oh, I was interested in why she's why she started there.
1: Yeah, because there's actually in Southern California, there's actually a rich history of Black farmers, Black homesteaders in Southern California working, particularly working land um, that was, uh, let's say, not the first pick. Right, uh, that uh, there was still racial discrimination as to like who got to pick what plots of land, but for these black farmers, that didn't matter. Their whole point was just where we are coming from, say in the South or back East, uh, we, we weren't able to, we wouldn't be able to get any land. So we'll take whatever you can give us. And then they started, they would form these, uh, black farming towns. Um, and in fact, i I name checked two of them, Victorville and Albertville and, uh, I believe it's Albertville, maybe is now part of a state park, hmm. uh, but it was once a thriving black farm community. Um, and you, if you go to that those those areas like Victorville, it's they're still they, the black communities who are there are absolutely the descendants of those black homesteaders. Oh wow! Uh, but now you know now it's city life or exurban life or whatever whatever it might be. But those, that's how those uh, at least some of those black populations got there. Um, so I was just so interested in that as well as its own, uh, sort of subset of the homesteading experience was the black homesteading experience. And then you had getting into like the Chinese experience in Montana and, uh, the ways that for the most part, they stuck to the cities, but then followed mining camps. Uh, and of course the, the, uh, the railroad, um, to form small pockets of communities like, uh, all over the map uh, where they would work for mining towns, but then there might be enough people that they start to form their own small towns. um, And then they try to make a go of it there. And just the idea of all these communities really existing and trying their best in this land um, was so, was endlessly captivating. Also in part, because again, they're just outside of, unless you're in that particular
0: area, they're, they're just not talked about at all. (laughs) <laughs> if they're even talked about there, yeah, I well, there's there's this hysterical line that Adelaide um quotes. For herself, it is questionable if any state in the union has better climate. Yeah. Speaking of Montana, and Montana will become this uh, its own kind of monstrous character in in Lone Women, and uh, you know, almost as bad as the one howling in Adelaide's drunk. Yeah. Yes. And your your characters are constantly describing Montana as a landscape that's trying to kill them. Uh so how did you uh, you know, wanna e- e- evoke? this fearsomeness of Big Sandy, Montana, which, I, if I'm not mistaken, is a real place. It's a real place. Uh, and how much that was a, a, a p- the biggest part of the struggle was fighting against the landscape.
1: Well, that was something that came up time and again in, so in that uh, that nonfiction work, uh, um, Montana Women Homesteaders, she does a fair bit of quoting from the journals of different lone women who left behind, you know, written journals. And then I read, um, uh, I think there's another one called The Diary of a Woman Homesteader, which is exactly that the diary of one particular woman who was homesteading. Uh, and of course, I read um, uh, accounts from male homesteaders as well. And one of the constant refrains in all of their work is how difficult it was to just eke out. Just sustenance, right? Like, where do we get water? Where do we get something we can burn for heat? How do we hunt so that we can eat food? How do we use what we hunt so that we can get the most out of it? It was a something they came back to constantly, um, uh, so regularly that it began to feel like I began to wonder if they even knew how often they were speaking of Hmm. it. Uh, But it was it was clearly like the thing that was always on their minds. Was how am I going to get through tomorrow?
0: And the, uh, one of the the memorable scenes for me is when Adelaide is is taking kind of crumbled up paper uh from leaflets or newspapers and shoving it in the cracks in her in her shack and and hoping that it will stop the wind the just sort of desolate wind but you know it's inevitably popping out or freezing yes and it just seemed like such a miserable kind of quotidian (laughs) existence that i'm not surprised that they mention it constantly
1: Yes, and uh, you know, I, I I really wanted to get those kind of details in there because that certainly was in the idea of like uh, all the different things that uh, people used uh, just to sort of insulate their homes and had to constantly replenish and become very inventive with. Uh, and needing to say homes is a, a, such an exaggeration. These were ten foot by ten foot cabins, uh, you know. Um, they were with, uh, with the thinnest of walls. I mean, the the idea that a human being would choose to go to this place, like, would say this is um, preferable to whatever it is I had at home mm-hmm. before this. I hoped uh, that would suggest just how either just how bad it must have been mm-hmm. in the other place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How desperate. As a human being, they were for
0: autonomy of some kind. Oh, yeah. That they would go through this. Absolutely. Uh, To my mind, you're one of the most exceptional practitioners of literary genre writing working today. I put you in a group with Silvia Moreno-Garcia and Mariana Enriquez, just a a few that I happen to love. And uh, I tend to think of genre as a toolbox from which a writer can draw formal and narrative elements for a story. But the best um, utilizers of that toolbox do so very unexpectedly. And Lone Women can certainly be called a Western and, and likewise a horror novel, but it's clear you want to destabilize the expectations the reader has for those two genres. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, drawing from those toolboxes and also wanting to kind of upset them?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, uh, one of the great joys of claiming a genre or genres for uh, a book or for a story is that, and this is a thing that I think when I was a younger writer, a newer writer, I avoided, and I now, uh, with time and distance, I see that I, I was essentially just making things harder for myself. One of the joys of when you, as soon as you say western, or horror, or um, uh, kitchen sink drama, or whatever it might be, uh, a, a thoughtful reader brings a 500 years of literary history. To that genre and where in the past when I was a newer writer I thought those were shackles uh, I now understand instead that they are expectations that I can both lean into so that I don't have to explain too much Uh, if I'm playing with the gothic and I say a character is going out to a remote location uh, the reader's Pretty much already signed up for that. From the word Gothic, mm-hmm. they're in. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. I don't have to make a huge case for that. The place where I I have to uh, sort of land things is what they where they go to and what it's like there, the the mood and the atmosphere there. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a similar way with Western or horror, let's say there's it, the Western in particular. I mean, there were there's all these expectations that we were talking about earlier that it's gonna be it's gonna be about men, it's gonna be by a white guy. It's going to be about some sort of like heroic battle to conquer the land. Yeah. uh, All those things. And what's great about that is I get to say, like on page one, no, it's a woman. Oh, no, it's a black woman. Uh, And at least in the beginning, uh, you think maybe she's the thing you're supposed to be scared of Mm -hmm. because it begins with her doing something that seems truly horrific and violent. And for a while, I was trying to play with the idea that, is it that this place she's going to is the threat, or is she the threat to this place? Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, all those things were hopefully things that might make a person say, like, oh, this is, I have not read a Western like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I'm not even sure this is a Western. And then we spent some time talking about the landscape and talking about the the mood, and then Maybe the reader starts to get comfortable again and say, "Oh no, okay, this feels like a western. There's a small town. There's this, this and this, but then there's that damn trunk, that damn trunk. <laughs> you know." And in that way, it gets to as exactly as you say, destabilize the expectations. But um, for me, I think the the reader who is my ideal reader understands the ways that those tropes are being um, used, and then celebrates when
0: those things are upturned. Yeah, that's I, I think that's perfectly said, and and I love having being upturned and having the rug pulled out from under me, and that and that happens so often. And yeah. and you're right, the beginning I'm like, oh man, she killed her parents and she set the house on fire, like. We're, we're in we're in the bad the bad lady territory mm-hmm. um, but then you know she's got this trunk that's moaning and and scratching and and something's bad there and then we're going to have all these other layered kinds of monsters expected and, and, and unexpected and that's my favorite the the particular demon monster going to be revealed to be a particular kind of monster later on I don't want to give that away but the horror in Adelaide's trunk is a devourer hungry for horses and people and its victims pile up as the novel progresses including Adelaide's parents her would-be lover and many others it has sharp scales and can fly or perhaps glide uh, and, and an unquenchable hunger she refers to it as her burden Adelaide does um but we never see the complete monster; just sort of flashes or images. Uh, we know a little bit about it's how it is, um, you know, perhaps different looking than a than a human, um, and this reinforces the sense of its deep symbolic nature. For me, it it looks and acts like a secret that was buried too deeply. How does Adelaide's burden operate as both a monster and also this sort of secret come to life? I I just, in general, I just,
1: I love monsters just across the board. And one of the reasons I love monsters is because they can serve two purposes, at least two purposes uh, very well, right? Like number one, they can serve as this great symbolic power that if done right, a reader, understands oh um i mean the book begins with uh um there are two types of people in this world uh, those who live with shame and those who die from shame and so on some level you can read the 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 monster as shame personified among other things Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and really understand that and family shame and the the desire to keep secrets and who does it hurt in literary realism in a way like uh you don't get to also have that metaphor tear people's heads off. <laughs> uh, you don't get to have that that uh, that metaphor be an active participant in the story in a way that um, I hope only deepens the point of the metaphor or mm. complicates mm. it. Uh, when halfway through the book, you get, let's say a. Uh, you get a new perspective on what this burden is or what this secret is. And my hope is that that then changes even all, again, all the tropes that one was bringing to the idea of a supernatural monster. For me, it it, it, it the joy of, of the monster is that you, you can say, Oh, I get it. But then also like, Oh my God, what did it do? Mm-hmm. You know? And I really like being able to have both, uh, at my disposal Uh, just because like, once you understand like the deeper metaphor, like uh, on some level, yeah, like then what do you do with it? Mm. You know, like the point has been made, so to speak. Yeah. Either um, you change the point or you deepen the metaphor or you have it, if in my case, like if it's an active participant in the story, then the metaphor gets to have its own uh, uh, sort of agency. And it gets to maybe even say, "I don't want to be your metaphor, yeah, yeah, you know uh and and to even and to point out the ways that like um Adelaide's r- decision that this is a burden doesn't mean that the burden agrees. Hmm.
0: You know? Oh, th- that's so beautifully said. And you, you're you're going to give us the the interior consciousness of the of the monster as a as a series of italicized stanzas, almost poetic images of that push back against Adelaide's uh, interpretation. And I'm I'm interested in why you decided to get in get inside the mind.
1: Well, I think that is... Uh, I, w- I have to credit my editor, Chris Jackson. Um, originally, when we had the sections from from the... Just to keep it vague, from the burdens point of view or the metaphor's point of view, it was written in the same prose style as everyone else. Um, and my editor, I think rightly, said uh, it loses... In a weird way, it actually destroys the sort of wonder and awe and magic of this perspective if you basically just tell it to me the same way everyone else's perspective was told. Mm-hmm. Um, because when you come to understand how or why this 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 being exists and what its existence has been, he was basically saying, uh, it just doesn't make sense to me that it would be just like everyone else's because its existence has been like very few others, if anyone. Uh, and so is there some way you might, uh, even on the page communicate to us that we've jumped into another, a truly alien for lack of better terms or other way of seeing the world. Um, and then the other thing I hoped to do when I decided on these sort of, let's say lyrical, I don't want to insult poets, so lyrical, <laughs> uh, um, uh, sort of way of, uh, portraying that, that, the, that, that character's inner life, um. I wanted it to be a little interesting or beautiful as well, because to my mind, it would only underscore the horror of its experiences hmm. because you would say, Oh, this isn't a mindless sort of force of evil, which in a way would be, it would be easier to sort of keep at a distance or dismiss. Um, but I mean, you know, I, this is a terrible comparison, but if, like, if the demon from The Exorcist started, like, speaking in beautiful verse,
0: <laughs>
1: it would be m- so much more disturbing, I think. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Because you would say, oh, it has access to something be- besides savagery mm. and and cruelty, and then suddenly you might be
0: interested in this thing in a new way. You know, at least that was the hope, like... Uh, yeah, yeah, and and then it, you can't just mm direct all this sort of animosity towards it as the the scapegoat for for your own things you have That's to right. you have to the character has to confront their own shames and not project them all onto the supposedly monstrous yes. but but i what i think is is very special about lone women is that there are monsters that look and act like monsters and then there are there are human monsters that slowly reveal themselves to be to be monstrous and i'd say in particular there are two kind of homesteader families um the mudges an almost feral family of a mother and her four sons who are at first understood the sons to be blind and the mudges are scavengers and collectors of stolen goods and land and they haunt adelaide and the denizens of big sandy and they're violent and and almost animalistic and the other family are the reeds um, Dreen, is that how you say it? Dreen, yeah. Yeah, Dreen and her husband. And they are, at, at least by homesteader standards, wealthy and powerful. Uh, Mr. Reed has a car, even. And uh, and Mrs. Reed is the head of the local suffragettes, the Busy Bees. And their violence is covered over by a veneer of the well-behaved, um, but is just as, if not more, monstrous. I, I, I wonder what you wanted to do with this sort of mirroring and twinning of the monster monster and the human monster
1: well you know it's a it's an uh, sort of old saw of ho- of of uh, horror right is like uh, the 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 greatest the, the most frightening monster is the human being after all right like that's that's uh, like an old saw of a certain kind of horror right like uh, nothing's uh, as bad as whatever the monster is human beings are worse but I the way I wanted to even complicate them was to show that at least in the case of the mudges, they are desperately trying to survive.
0: Yeah, that's true. Uh,
1: in this so world. Um, and they don't really have any other, at least as far as they might be concerned, you know I, I, I for all the backstory I had in my head, I didn't want us to turn to the kind of historical novel where you just and here's their whole history and here's their whole history. like uh, I'm not a big fan of that um, uh, when I when I read it, uh, unless it's done really well. Um those are usually quite boring, I find. I think so. I think so. Uh if only because yeah, you know, you you, you know, one of the uh, potential uh uh pitfalls of doing a ton of research, you know, as a writer is you you you, you need to tell everybody about how much work you did. Mm-hmm. And so then suddenly you have these 20 page descriptions of oh she grew up here and then went to there and and you kinda go. Okay, what does that change? What does that do for me? He said, "Not much, but I I thought it was interesting. Like that's the author's perspective, something <laughs> you know." And I wanted to avoid that. I did hope that I might communicate with them that kind of hand-to-mouth living. If you do it long enough, it might just wear away the hu- the most humane parts of your of yourself till there isn't anything but this sort of scavenging animal. And that as much as I I hoped that the mudges were frightening and disturbing like characters, I still felt a degree of empathy for them in a way that I didn't quite feel for the reeds. Yeah, yeah. uh, Because the reeds didn't have to scrabble. They were the wealthiest family in in Big Sandy, in the whole region. Um, And they could, in theory just with their wealth and their, um, standing, uh, probably, uh, get their way in most things as people like that usually do. So the idea that they might also add in, uh, the tool of, of violence, you know, uh, the tool of like the, the iron fist on those who sort of step outside of their authority. I, I hoped, I felt like it should damn them more
0: mm-hmm because uh, well, they it, it feels that way in the novel and i mean certainly the way things go <laughs> i think that's the point point. Uh, and, and the whole the the kind of moniker they take on of the stranglers is frankly one of the scariest things in the novel yes.
1: I mean I think you know certainly I was trying to lean into all those like uh you know certainly the clan and things like that mm-hmm, the uh, mm-hmm. the uh the and certainly in our day the uh, the militias yeah that, yeah that exist who take law into their own hands uh simply because they know they have the numbers and they have the guns mm
0: mm-hmm. mhm oh, that's so true there's this interesting through line from your novel the changeling to to lone women and that is this sort of maternal fear shame disgust around a kind of like the monstrousness of children and birth and things like that and and I wondered as you were you know writing various aspects of lone women how the changeling was coming to bear on this this new novel
1: well I you know in my mind I think the changeling was very much uh, I wrote that when our my, when my wife gave birth to our first son uh, I wrote it probably within the first two two to three years of his life, um, when I was trying to get down, in particular, like the hardships, the horrors, and the triumphs of the very early parenting years. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, All of the complexities of a father's, of a new father's perspective, and perhaps in ways that were not... The, the father was the main character, so the, the wife's uh, story I had to sort of like either imply or get through dialogue and things like that. But also the complexities and the hardships of the early mother's time and the ways that um, when you're stuck in that mix of exhaustion and anxiety, you can feel like you're walking through a horror novel like on a daily basis, mm-hmm. if your kid gets sick, oh my gosh, allowed yeah. to play. Uh, the first time your kid, you let your kid. Let's even say you let your kid walk a block or two ahead of you. Even that can feel like a, a little bit of a horror. Or first time they go running into the park without you, uh, all that kind of stuff. So that was like from the parenting perspective. This one, I I felt like I wanted to talk about it from like the siblings. Mm-hmm. Perspective, from the point of view of the of the children who are left with the responsibility of one another, you know, um, so, you know, I guess the from in my mind, the tie is about like, how do people reckon with the joys and the horrors of just family connection mm-hmm. at all?
0: Yeah, and you've got uh, one of my favorite uh, elements of that is is Job and and Delmas uh, Mudge, two of the two of the brothers, who you, you make it clear look almost identical, yeah, and yet they become these siblings with absolute kind of oppositional turns in in their life, and and I love that play with kind of twins and then kind of these these sort of deep oppositionals.
1: There's a way that Joab and Delmas, I thought, might play nicely against Adelaide and her burden. Yeah,
0: yeah, Uh, absolutely.
1: And you, and that you could see, sort of two ways of sort of of two ways of wrestling with this question of, you know, am I my brother's keeper? What do I owe to my family?
0: And and also with Adelaide and Grace. And the idea of, uh, you know, a secret and, a, you know, a, a, a secret of a uh, of a family that's carried by one woman or another. And you've got that yes. phrase. Um, is it a woman is a mule? Is this? Yes. Yeah. And I felt like that was uh, that was operating there, too. Yes, certainly. And uh, I mean, I think
1: in various ways, like um, for many people in the world, right, like family is. What is it? The saying, the saying, you know, family over everything. Family. Mm-hmm. means But, uh, I have not always, I don't always feel that way. Uh, you know, uh, I've just as often, I think many people do felt like your worst enemy is your family. Your greatest burden is your family. Uh, you know, uh, that certainly growing up. There were times when I certainly felt like is could maybe could we all call it quits? It's like uh, <laughs> let's just all go we, our We gave away. it a shot. We it's gave a... a shot. It didn't work out. <laughs> There's four of us. Let's go four different directions, and just good luck, everybody. You know, <laughs> um, and uh, I guess I feel I feel certainly different than that now that I'm married and a father. Like I see, I you know that, and on some level, I feel like that is the perspective of a of a child. Mm -hmm. Right. Who can, in theory, just walk away Uh, versus now when uh, nothing would break my heart more than if the family I have created, I built now with my wife, if we all walked in our four separate directions, I think uh, I don't know how I I would go on like Mm -hmm. uh, because they're so vital to me. (laughs) But both of those perspectives feel valid to me and are true. I think uh, in different uh, or valuable in in different ways, and I and I did want to play with uh, Bertie and Fiona are completely found family, but I think yeah. in many ways feel the most openly loving. Yes, of yeah, all the, of all the people,
0: yeah, in this the story. only real like the only real intimacy. loving couple,
1: <laughs> yes, literally <laughs> the only true intimacy. Because mm-hmm. even Adelaide has a little fling, and then it turns it turns. Yeah. So, uh, uh, again, like out and again, out of desperation more than evil. hmm Um, but, uh, but Bertie and Fiona are, as far as I'm concerned, like the only idealized ish
0: couple. Yeah. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And they, they could have their own, things. they could have their own novel. If you ever want to do an off. Yes. I'd be, I, mean, I would believe me. I would, uh, I've been
1: like, uh, the, the, the women of, uh, the women of this book have, uh, have not left my mind.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. They, they certainly haven't left mine. <laughs> um, I can't miss asking about Anne Bronte's The Tenant of Wildfell Hall, <laughs> um, which is a book I quite like. And Adelaide carries with her as one of her few possessions out to the homestead and has read it so much that it's falling to pieces. That's a novel that thinks a lot about being a social at- outcast. Um, yes. I just wanted to know how it resonates with you and, and Adelaide's status as an outcast.
1: Well, you know I, like uh, I, I, by now I, I find myself sometimes I like it if my book has a book mm-hmm. right If like a, the book I'm working on has like almost like a totem uh, uh, of a book. So like in the Changeling, it had outside over there by Maurice Sendak was a was like a central text. It wasn't the only one but it was mm-hmm. it was the one that I felt like oh that's the energy that I want to sort of um, like if you if you showed a family tree. That would be its predecessor or one of its predecessors, mm-hmm. uh, and that here I kind of like when I was sort of casting about for what the book in my book would be, uh I don't know why I was thinking about like the bronte sisters, like I don't know you know sometimes the way you it just sort of uh, something seems like it might it's on the it's giving off a sort of frequency mm. and you don't know why, but then I felt like. I fuck those other two, you know, they get enough, <laughs> they do, they get, they, get the, enough they get all the attention, they get all the attention, <laughs> yes, it gets nothing. Uh, <laughs> and then really, like, uh, but what I also felt was like, but and this, but this novel, if I was like in world, if I was going to think about what would be the book that Adelaide would like listen to and, and take to heart the most, it would be this one. About like living under um, the kind of shackle of a family burden, right, or a f- or being shackled to someone, mm. and the desire to be free of that person, and the idea that the book, in some ways, I do wonder. You know, sometimes if like part of, let's set aside maybe the other books. Maybe they're better written. I don't know, or like uh or maybe the, the stories in them uh, are a little bit more immersive. Uh, but one, I, 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 find the book so bold for the ways that it is sort of so open about its politics,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and uh, and just dares to just talk about the things it means in that time period. Like, uh, um, so I was just, I just was saying, like, okay, it's going to be one of these. It's going to be one of these sisters. It's going to be the sister who's most overlooked. And it's going to be this book that on some level um, speaks to that that feeling of like, I have to get
0: away. Mm-hmm. I have to get free. I have to try uh, something else. Well, well, I loved finding it there. And I'm, I'm going to think um, of that phrase, uh, my book has a book, a lot going <laughs> forward because I really like that. Before I let you go, would you be willing to recommend some some books that have found your favor of late?
1: for well, sure the first one is what you already mentioned Mariana Enriquez and I was gonna mention uh, our share of night oh yeah uh, which I think is wonderful and I'm trying to think of like stuff that's also like that's a relatively newer book you know uh, you can still get it in that beautiful hardcover uh with that it beautiful is
0: beautiful thing. it's, uh, it's a
1: clawed hand thing. yes. It's just so captivating. Uh, and then the work inside is even more so, you know. Uh, and then another one I was thinking of was uh, The Strange by Nathan Ballingrud. I don't uh, know that. It came out, I want to say, late March. And if I was going to, I don't know if you know Nathan Ballingrud's work at March. all. Uh, and if you don't, I think you uh, would love his stuff. Um, he's got a, uh, his first book of stories is called um North American lake monsters. Ooh. Uh and then the second one i think is called An Atlas of the Hell. Maybe <laughs> that's like a story in there. Um Love but titles. Uh, <laughs> I mean he, he he's really really wonderful wonderful writer. Uh and the strange the the shortest description i could give is it's true grit on Mars. Oh
0: fantastic.
1: And like that's really the simplest clearest way and if the, if that sounds exciting or interesting I'm gonna read that this it. weekend. That's, that sounds so perfect. <laughs> yeah, it's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful book. Uh, and he's just so sm- And then, and then if you if you end up diving into his catalog, you'll see like this one is much closer to true grit, and it's much, it's clearer, simpler. Like it's got a got a goal, and it sticks to it kind of thing. And then his other stuff can turn almost like baroque uh, in its inventiveness and its language, and it's he just can do so much. Hmm. Um, and certainly I would say
0: Mariana Enriquez can do anything yeah yeah I feel that way too well those are two great recommendations but I can't recommend enough Lone Women by Victor Laval. and I I just it was such a pleasure to get to talk to you I've admired your work for many years and um, this is yet another great one to add to the catalog so thank you Victor oh Chris it's my pleasure thanks for having me on this was great Absolutely. Well, that's all from me for now. My great thanks to the brilliant Victor Laval for coming on to talk about his latest extraordinary novel, Lone Women. I apologize in advance for your lost weekend once you crack the novel. You can find links to purchase Lone Women and all Victor's recommended books at the website. BurnedByBooks.com. there you'll find all of our previous episodes links to buy a podcast t-shirt and ways to get in contact as you listen take a moment to rate the show on itunes spotify or wherever you find your podcasts this will bring us more listeners and allow the show to grow i have some exciting writers and interviews coming in the next few weeks and i hope you'll join me for those conversations Until next time, this has been Burned by Books.